Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Wolf, co-CEO and co-founder of Bloomfilter, an AI-driven process mining platform that's raised $7 million in funding. Andrew, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Super excited for our conversation here. To kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, my name is Andrew Wolf, uh, co-CEO and co-founder of Bloomfilter. I'm a serial entrepreneur in Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in central Ohio. I've lived on both coasts for a little bit of time. I come from a technical background, so I started coding professionally when I was 13. Uh, A lot of listeners may or may not know what Usenet is, but I used to join Usenet forums and would bill myself out building Perl and PHP websites when the internet was still very young. And I grew that into an entire career. I have a master's in computer science. I've spent my entire career either being a leader or manager or developer uh, in the technical space, just very enthusiastic about uh, finding problems and solving them with code. And so all that's led me to be an entrepreneur. I remember reading the first Paul Graham essays and how transformative and, you know, paradigm shifting those were for me. So, you know, I just very much love the startup game and technology and, and the intersection between the two. So take us back to when you were 13, living in Ohio there. Where did you get the exposure to tech and, and this whole world? Yeah, I was uh, a, we'll call it a disadvantaged youth um, and I didn't necessarily have the best upbringing. And so I got to spend a lot of time at the library for various different reasons. Some of them because I was on probation and some of them because I didn't have the internet at home. And uh, when you're spending, I don't know, four to five hours a day at the library, you find out a lot of books. And the internet was kind of brand new. And so there were really cool games online. I wanted to build games. And so I would check out a book and, you know, started with C and C++. And from there, grew it into Perl and then uh, PHP, which was my first web, uh, web native language, we'll call it. So it was just a matter of what you do with five hours of time and w- with a curiosity to build things. As you started to dive deeper there, in the back of your head, did you always have this idea that at some point you would be an entrepreneur and and start a company? Or was the initial idea to be just a developer and and just build and write code? It was really around that. I mean, I didn't really know entrepreneurship was a thing growing up. I didn't necessarily have anyone around me that was an entrepreneur. And, you know, the internet was still really fragmented. So finding communities where people were building actual businesses and everything else wasn't nearly as prevalent as it is today. So I would just join Usenet forums, which were these like, uh, you know, ICQ is uh, or AOL. They were kind of like that, but they were a little different and you could join them and there was a bunch of people chatting and randomly people would post, hey, I, I still need someone to write this website or fix this or do this. And they would pay $20, $30 an hour when you don't have any money and you're a teenager really good. So you start picking up jobs like that and you kind of learn on the job. And really people were patient. I mean, no one was really the 
web professional that we have today. It was very much the wild west. So if you knew anything about anything, we always joke that if you knew HTML, you could get a job paying six figures in Silicon Valley. But it was mostly true. I mean, no one really understood any of it. So if you understood anything at all, you could make you know pretty decent money just doing odd jobs here or there. When it comes to your inspiration, who is like the most inspirational founder that that comes to mind? I'm going to throw way back in American history. Uh, Rockefeller is my all-time inspirational founder slash entrepreneur. I mean, when you look at the impact that the man had, right? You can you know take the legal things out of it, but when Standard Oil is broken up, it created the Seven Sisters, the seven largest oil companies, who today still pretty much dominate the market. He founded University of Chicago, started one of the premier PhD programs for medical science and you know the medical field in general, and just the breadth and depth that he, uh, the impact he had on American society and you know society around the world, really. And on top of that, to be able to do all that while still staying true to his values, and I mean, it's hard to imagine a guy that's had more impact than he did, particularly. It's just for me, that's inspirational. It's like what you could achieve by staying laser focused on building and solving a key problem everyone has, and then giving back to the world in a very significant and meaningful way. Yeah, he's such a fascinating entrepreneur and just historical figure in general. I am a a bit of a nerd there with Rockefeller. I read Titan. That's one of my all-time favorite biographies. And then I was just listening to a podcast recently that went deep on Standard Oil called uh, Acquired. Have you ever listened to that? That's on my list of podcasts, and Titan's one of my favorite books. I, I really want to listen to it. I'm a huge fan, and every every like thing about the Gilded Age, I'm a huge fan of that period of time because it's so interesting. And how about like Carnegie, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan, all all of those entrepreneurs did such incredible things. And granted, there's some things in society that didn't happen the way they should, and all that you can judge it. But just looking at it from pure commerce, business, bigger type time period. It's just so interesting. Yeah, totally agree. You'll like this one fact that I got from Acquired. So I was listening to the episode on Standard Oil. I think it was like four hours long. So you have to you, know, you have to spread it out. But they said that Chevron still has the copyright in California to Standard Oil. And in California, there's like a use it or lose it policy, I guess, with copyright. So driving around if you look at all of the gas stations you know they look like the normal mobile sign but if you look at one in particular in san francisco it actually does say standard oil on it so it's the exact same logo they would normally have for mobile gas stations but it says standard oil and that's the only one that's left i believe in in the country so one little random fact that i thought was really cool it's re- that is really interesting and kind of hilarious too <laughs> yeah for sure now outside of titan what would you say is your uh, your favorite book Ooh. I would go Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's it, to me, it's one of the seminal classics when you think about just one psychology, but two. I I really like the way it's written. I like the story that gets told in it, and I I like the concept it poses of quality being metaphysical. And I think that spins off a lot of different thoughts for me in terms of well, if that's metaphysical, what does that actually mean for other things like artistry and engineering? If quality is between the user, the person and the object, then it throws into question a lot of different things that we do every day, uh, especially when it comes to creative functions. So that's my favorite, I think, thought-provoking book and probably my favorite book of all time. Ooh, that's a good endorsement. That's one of those books that I've 
just hear or I've heard from time to time people talk about, but I've never actually added it to the Amazon cart. So I'll do that right after this interview. Awesome. You should. It's a great read. Let's switch gears now and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So how we like to begin this portion of the interview is really talking about the problem. So at a very, very high level, what problem does Bloomfilter solve? Yeah, Bloomfilter in one sentence is process mining for the SDLC. What that means is we sit on top of your existing systems, systems, Jira, GitHub, Figma, systems that people use every day to build software. We pull the data out, we apply AI and uh, process mining techniques, we stitch the data together, and then we show you where you have issues in your process. And by doing that, we make you more predictable, observable, and efficient. Really, the end of the day, the problem statement is that 70% of software projects are late over budget or don't ship at all. Just to give you a reference, $208 billion is going to be spent this year on software development. And next year, that number will go up 30%. Globally, it's a trillion dollar problem. And when you apply 78% of that is waste, it starts to really put into perspective just how much of a problem this is. And that's the problem we're going after. Take us back to October 2021 when you founded the company. What was it about this problem in particular that made you say, yep, that's it. Let's go build a company around this. Oh, yeah. So this is not the first company I've built to try to solve this problem. So I became obsessed with this problem when I was a consultant years ago. I had sold my second startup to a massive real estate company. It was an AI company in the real estate space. And I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and what really got me was this particular problem. Uh, I was brought into a local healthcare system here in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a project that needed saving and I, I was pretty good at saving projects at that point. So they brought me in and it was a children's diabetes monitor. And the, you know, before you can buy them now, I think they even sell them off the shelf, but it was a ultraviolet light uh, thing you'd put on your shoulder and then uh, you'd have a uh, companion app that would tell you, you know, what your A1C levels were and all that. And so I figured what I was joining was the firmware wasn't working on the device. I'd worked on the level C in my master's program. I could definitely help them with that, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was the mobile app. And so uh, joining this project, it was completely sideways. They didn't have any of the best practices implemented. And this was one of the largest consulting shops in the world. Um, you can throw a dart and pick one of them and you'd probably be right. But I came in, uh, they put me in charge of the project, and it was ultimately canceled. But during the four or five months I was working on this project, I got to see the impact that this would have had. You know, I start interfacing with the kids during test days, and they're so excited because they don't have to prick their fingers every morning or every time they need to test their blood. This, you know, as small as it might be, the small little traumas in life start to add up. And this was something that could have solved the problem. And to me, the device seemed like the hard part, right? Like you got this cool medical device that seems really hard to build and we can't write a mobile app, like the software, like the, it's just a mobile app, like something everyone does every day. Hotel chains do it, fast food companies have mobile apps, but we can't write a mobile app to solve this problem. And so it just drove me nuts that we couldn't get this to ship. So I started a company called Skiplist six months after that, which was a consulting company to basically fix this. In my mind, it was a concept around thoughtful software. And I thought this world's failing because software is eating the world and we're being thoughtless. We were these supposed to be the smartest industry in the world. And yet, you know, we have spyware installed as social media networks and all this other stuff. And we're just thoughtless in how we ship software. And we scaled that to about eight figures. But what really 
still bothered me was we weren't really getting to the scale where I felt like we could fix this problem. You know, in fact, by the time we had, I had left Skipless as CEO and founder, the problem had gone from 68% of software projects are late over budget adult ship to 78%. That a new study was published. And the problem was getting worse. And I was like, but someone has to build something that's scalable and can actually solve this problem. Because if not, then, you know, this is a little arrogant, but if not me, then who? And other people had been trying, but they kept missing the mark, in my opinion. We can talk about that later. But I was like, I have to do something in the space and it has to be more scalable if I'm going to solve this problem for an entire industry. And so that's where Bloom Filter really came out of. It came out of one, our own lessons I had learned being a software consultant and all the ways projects can fail at hundreds of different companies and the processes they have and the problems they bring to us. But on top of that, a deep burning passion to actually fix this problem, help drive this industry towards, you know, professionalism and being able to actually ship on time and on budget. Was that hard to leave behind that consultancy then? Because doing eight figures, that's a that's a pretty good sized business. Was that hard to to leave it behind to do a, a startup? Uh, you know, making a lot less money now. It's some days I look at my paycheck and think, oh, you'd be nice. But, you know, I'm a very mission driven person. And at the end of the day, the mission was always more important to me than the money we were making. And so in a way, yes, it was difficult to say, hey, we're going to take, you know, me and my wife, we're going to take far less money and we're going to do this, but this is important. But on the other hand, I was, you know, not miserable, but unhappy because I wasn't chasing the problem I'd set out to fix. And it wasn't fixing it in the way I wanted to and in a way that would be scalable, that would put the industry right. And so in another way, it was kind of easy because, you know, there's only so many days you can wake up and go to work on something that you start to believe a little less in because you know it's not solving the problem you want to solve. Makes perfect sense. And, and that's awesome to hear. What about the first paying customers? How'd you manage to land those? That's something that I know all startup founders struggle with in the early days. Yeah, we were fortunate. During my time as a consultant in a previous founding and you know my other co-founders are also serial entrepreneurs, we've built a pretty sizable network of people that trust what we do and trust our word. And, you know, I don't ever put that easily because it's so important that these people trust us. So we just called up the people that we I knew had this problem at Skip List. And my co-founders also called their people up that knew that they were running development shops that probably had this problem. Again, when 78% of projects are quote failures, like everyone tends to have the problem. So it was easy for us to call them and say, hey, I'm building this new platform that's going to solve your software process issues to help you ship on time. You know, it was a no brainer for them to say, yeah, I see a demo. And, you know, through that, you know, maybe made 15, 20 calls and 12 of them converted to our first design partners. And, you know, they're still customers today. When you're looking at a market that that's so big and the, the problem is so big, I'm sure it can be hard to figure out, you know, what that ICP is. What's that journey been like for you and really uncovering who that ICP is and, and who you want to focus on? Because I'm sure everyone's experiencing it, it sounds like, but who can you focus on and who are you really targeting to serve? Yeah, that was, it's actually been the hardest part of this journey. As you said, like everyone has this problem. So we have to really figure out who did we want to sell to well and not who we wanted to sell to too because just because everyone has the problem doesn't mean they all feel it viscerally you know software companies for example they feel this problem a little less viscerally because they're going to spend the money either way so they're kind of willing to take the bets a little more than say a countertop company who's another one of our customers 
So when we were first starting out, we actually thought we'd be a PLG type company and it'd be land and expand and we would try to sell it through product managers and project managers who want these metrics. And as we started talking to people, they were very excited. And then I think slowly they realized the level of accountability that would come from the kind of transparency and observability we give into people's process that doesn't exist today. And what we found is that people don't really sign up for more scrutiny. And when that happened, we're like, well, there's no way we could sell bottoms up. So we started to sell top down. And that was fortunate because that's where our my network, I have a network of CIOs and CTOs I've worked with for years. But that was fortunate. And as we started working with them, we noticed something else that some organizations were a little too big for our initial platform to support. Not that we couldn't support a Fortune 500 company ever. It's just at the time that we were working with them, we didn't have things that could support a matrix organization, right? So you have a vertical reporting structure of the VPs, a VP of engineering, a VP of design, VP of product. And then horizontally, development teams are structured as uh, you know multi-functional teams where you have a product manager, designer, engineers, and all that. They all have different managers. And so you know, provides a unique challenge in how you have to architect your product. We just weren't ready for that level of complexity. So as we found out, we were able to whittle it down to about 30 to 300 engineers. When you have that number of people, you tend not to be quite matrixed yet, tend to report up through a CTL. And then the people we tend to do best with are agile development or trying to be agile. And they're using mainly cloud systems. So they're using systems like Jira and Figma, but they're using them all cloud-based. And so when, that sounds hyper-specific, but it took a lot of iterations and a lot of running our heads from the wall of, well, who do we talk to? Well, okay, this customer works. There's 30 to 300 engineers, but they're running on-premise Jira. Okay, well, we don't really want to support on-premise products because that has its own problems that comes with product architecture and all that. Ultimately, that's how we landed on that just really aggressive iteration and talking. We probably talked to... 150 different people throughout the process of getting to our ICP. And I mean, a lot of the people are still, some of them people are still in our pipeline, but we probably got, you know, rid of 75 of them. I mean, we'll come back and talk to them again, but mm -hmm. it's a long journey sometimes to find the right ICP, especially when the market's really big and there's a lot of different opportunities you can take. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. How have you seen the messaging and positioning evolve? Yeah, uh, well, when we first started, we were actually talking about, well, we're just going to tell you whether your project's doing great or not and show you where you probably have issues with different things your team is doing, different behaviors. And so we're very behavior driven and we're trying to coach people. I uh, think it, like a, almost a career coach or a executive coach, but for your software process. That I think worked, but really didn't solve the problem that we were going after. So then we went after just, well, we'll be you know, basically your operating system for software development. So uh, you put your data in and we kind of show you where everything is. That was great, but it didn't quite explore the right areas in people's minds of how problems that they were facing. It was actually through happenstance that we landed on process mining. Uh, one of our co-founders, Eric, 
was a you know huge fan of Salonis and he'd worked with Salonis in a previous gig and they're a huge process mining in the accounting space out of Europe. He was like, hey, you know, this really doesn't sound like any of those things you're saying. It sounds like process mining. I'm like, I've never heard of it. It's not a term that's really big here in America yet. And so we did some research, like that's exactly what we're trying to do. That's exactly what we're doing. And it makes sense. It's a market that's like no one's really doing anything in. And so it really helped us move our positioning from this operating system for software development or this process coach to really being, you know, hey, we're going to help you, you know, unobfuscate your process. How do you think about your market category then? Is it process mining for software development or is it something else? What is that market category? Yeah, it's process mining for software development. So we talked to analysts, which were in the early days of doing. That's how we like to talk about our product. Now, people will put us in the value stream space. So uh, there's this whole category for Gartner and uh, Forrester and all those around value stream. And that's there's some products in there that you know are seen as competitive at the moment. We don't think we, be- we belong in that space. Obviously, you know, there's one thing for the market to say, no, you do, and they still buy your product. So great, maybe we do. But I feel like those products are going after a different category than we are. I think they're going after really more engineering productivity and more how are things specifically what like code and how developers are shipping and efficiency and effectiveness is simply the developers. We don't believe that's where the value is. We believe that uh, software is a whole process and it has upstream problems and downstream problems. Uh, engineering certainly can be a problem, but tends not to be the biggest problem that most organizations. Have you ever been tempted or has it been hard to not just you know go with what the analysts are saying and, and take maybe the easy route? Be like, okay, we're going to be in this category that's established. There's buyers, there's a line item. And the reason I ask that is because a lot of founders that I've spoken to, that's what they deal with. They feel like they're creating a new category. And then they go to the analyst and Gardner will say, no, no, you're not creating a new category. You need to conform and, and be part of this existing category. Has that been something that you've experienced? Yeah, no. And the temptation's there every day. It can be painful run your head against the wall and say, no, we're different. Here's why. And spending the time to do that because you know, you're trying to sell your product and it'd be much easier if you got judged against products that you know would be in a category that's attractive for where people are spending money. But the downside of that is if you're not in that category and we don't feel like we are, then you're competing in a category where you don't have all the features and functionality that the other people do, right? Why would you? Because yeah, you might have some overlap, the Venn diagram might exist, but you don't have a lot of overlap. And so they're competing in a feature set that's what everything's being compared to and you have a small percentage of that. So you're look, you look like a laggard, you look like you're not innovating. In reality, you are innovating but you're in a, in a space that they're not really categorizing yet. And so you have to continue to fight that tide and show why you're different. And you have to do that every day and say, hey, are they talking about this way? Are they talking about these type of features? Are they talking about this these types of solutions? And over time, people say, you know, this is how they talk and this is how you talk. Maybe you are different. And it does take time and it is very frustrating and it is very time consuming. But you, know, you don't want to compete in a space where again, you're never going to win because you're never going to have the feature set the other people have because you are truly different. And so, you know, obviously you reckon with reality too. If you are in that space, just because you want to be different, doesn't mean you have to be different. Like 
there's a lot of great businesses in the CRM market. Yeah, Salesforce is number one and they're like $40 billion in revenue or whatever this year. But, you know, HubSpot's doing pretty good. No one's complaining about HubSpot. And so, you know, don't necessarily compete. You know, try to create a new category if you don't have to, because then you're also, you're building a new product, a new company that's difficult enough, plus a new category. You know, it's a lot to take on at one time. Just from this conversation, it's it's very clear you know what you're talking about with marketing, with positioning. What I've found in other conversations with technical founders is for a lot of them, that's not the case. You know, they're they're software developers, that's their expertise. And when it comes to marketing, when it comes to positioning, they're lost. Their message is essentially, hey, we're really good, or hey, we're the best, or you know, we have these features, different things like that. So how did you go from being you know, a technical developer to being, you know, someone who's so intelligent when it comes to marketing and positioning? There's a couple of things there. I, my co-founder is really good at it. And so I've got to listen to him and learn from him every day. And like you work with that uh, person like that for, you know, enough years, you end up just learning a lot and that that's helpful. I've also, because I was so weak in the sales and marketing area and I knew that going into it, I studied and I just read a lot of books in the area and absorbed it. And then you know, test it out the thesis is too. Like, hey, if I, maybe I'm going into this pitch. I'm going to try to position this way, right? If I'm raising a Series A, I'm going to talk or a seed round or any round. I'm going to talk to hundreds of investors probably. I have an opportunity now to test a lot of different things. Well, maybe I'll position it this way. Maybe I'll position it this way. Eventually, you come around with like, why does that work when it doesn't? You start to AD test these kind of things. Think about it from a development perspective, right? You don't know how the code's going to work when you go. You don't necessarily know to solve the problem right away. What you do know is you can go about it this way and try that. Well, that didn't work. Okay, come back, try it this way. Okay, that sort of works. And you can start to iterate towards, you know, learning all of this pretty quickly. And then on top of that, you can also observe how do other companies talk about their stuff? How do they position themselves? Why do they position themselves? Why, you know, why does no software work? And you can start to research these different techniques and you really start to become illuminating over time. And you start to see the same patterns you see in engineering, right? Over 20, I was an engineer for 20 years. So, you know, when I see some problems, I'm like, oh, it's just another one of those types of problems. If you're familiar with the term from principles uh, for by Ray Dalio, right? Mm -hmm. It's just another one of those. And you just pick up a lot of that on marketing and sales. Like, oh, it's just another one of those. And you, you start to say, oh, well, the enterprise customer is saying these words, that means that they actually are trying to purchase and solve this type of problem. And then you can delve in, ask the right questions and kind of re-engineer some of these first principles in sales and marketing. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. What about the co-CEO structure that you have? We recently had uh, Henrique on from Brex that they're, I think, a very famous startup that has co-CEOs. I think Oracle at one point had co-CEOs, but from the conversation with Henrique at Brex, he was telling me that it's different for every company. There's no you know, clear playbook for what it looks like to have the co-CEO structure. So how have you guys structured it? Yeah. So I head up the technical side of the house. So I have engineering product and customer success. And he has sales, marketing, and we split fundraising, although he's the primary fundraiser. And so the way we like to think about it is, you know, I'm the technical one, so I can go in and, you know, happy to build a roadmap and do engineering. And uh, I own customer success too, because we're early enough that it's a, really a product function at this point. Like a lot of times iterating to make your customer successful is building features and 
listening to what they have to say. Eventually, he'll own it because it'll turn into a revenue function over time. And then because he's good at sales and marketing, it just it has this really beautiful way of working because he's not untechnical either. So he'll come and help me on product side. And I, you know, I'm one of our better closers at the company. So I can come and help him on the sales side from a tactical standpoint. So we we can help we can shift dials when we need to. And if he needs a couple of days off, like I can help him run sales and marketing as you mentioned. And if I need to take a couple of days off, he can come to stand up and help provide some product guidance and all of that during my time off. So it's really been beneficial. You know, I've been the guy before where you're just the CEO and there's a lot of long nights when you do that. I mean, many more than I have, you know, I have long nights now because startup, but you know, when you're just that person, you know, there's so many things that have to happen. You have accounting, right? You have to balance your books every week. You have to make sure that you're top of, like if you're doing all those functions yourself, like it can get really exhausting. So I'm very glad that I get to share responsibility and we both get to work in the areas that we're super strong in while being able to shift into the lanes where we can help and provide unique skill sets that, you know, serial entrepreneurs and uh, CEOs tend to build up over time. Now, we talked about it earlier that you're based there in Ohio. Have you ever thought about moving to Silicon Valley and, and weighed the pros and cons of you know being established here? Not established here, but really just being based here from a sales, marketing, and, and recruiting and, and fundraising perspective. Has that been something that you've battled with? Uh, yeah, it has been. A few times in my career, I thought about moving there. In fact, I did live in Seattle for a while. I moved out there because I wanted to live on the coast, but I uh, was really coin flip between Silicon Valley and uh, San Francisco or uh, Seattle. And I ultimately ended up in Seattle again. Uh, I was an early engineer at Tableau. Uh, so that was a great opportunity. And I got to ride that wave for a little while. I would say pre-pandemic, it was really pushing me that way. I probably would have done it had the pandemic not happened. It was just really hard to raise money. No one was really writing checks outside of the Valley. I mean, there's some VCs here in the Midwest, and there's certainly some really nice ones now, but those were just getting started pre-pandemic 2018, 2019. And so it was hard to raise money. It was hard to get the conversations, but now people pretty much are all geographically you know, agnostic in their check writing. So it's not as important. And, you know, talent as well has kind of dispersed a little bit, not as much. I think if you're looking, if you're building an AI company, I think Silicon Valley is one of the greatest. And I, I'm certainly not a doomer, as some people put it, for the uh, Silicon Valley. I think that it's a great place. I have a lot of friends out there. There's a lot of talent, but it's less important than it was before. And I still think in general, uh, you can build a great team in the Midwest. And then you can also bring in the Silicon Valley talent and uh, the talent of the coast to the company and start to build some of that given how everyone likes to work remote. You know, we're co-HQ'd too. Uh, Eric, my co-founder and co-CEO lives up in Chicago and I live here in Cleveland. So we have access to two. Cleveland's not a huge city, but has some great tech schools near here. And he's obviously in Chicago and that has a huge depth of talent itself. So we haven't run into anything from a talent perspective that we need to do it. But I, if I was a net new founder and I needed to be able to raise money and build a network and be surrounded by people that could help me, I think it'd be a no brainer to move to a place like Silicon Valley where you could build that network, get access to the venture capitalists and all that. But being established as well as help because I've had this opportunity to network over a long career 
and meet a lot of these people and build good relationships with them. That makes a lot of sense. Because I feel like that's the main reason to be in Silicon Valley, right? Is to have those relationships or establish those relationships. So if you already have them, there's not that much benefit being here. And the cost of living is also insane, I'm guessing, compared to uh, Cleveland. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yes. I couldn't imagine the house of living would it cost in you know, any, any of the cities in Silicon Valley. I mean, it'd be at least 5x. Um, <laughs> Crazy. Now, let's talk a little bit about fundraising. I know you mentioned there that your co-founder leads a lot of those efforts, but from the the seven million you've raised so far, what have you learned about fundraising that you could share? Yeah, uh, however long you think it's going to take, just double it. Especially this uh, climate. Like we were lucky; we raised some pretty big names like Sequoia and all that. But that was also we've had a lot of access under our belt as a team, so we were pretty seasoned people. We struggled with it. So I'd say double the amount of time you think it took. We th- we thought it'd take us about three months. Uh, it ended up taking us, I think, six, uh, maybe a little longer, six. And we knew 65 to 70 VCs that we were on first name basis with. So we reached out to all of them, uh, some of which thesis we didn't fit, but we were able to test our pitch with them and get feedback. So I would say if you think, you know, for every million you're going to raise, you're probably going to talk to 10 to 20 VCs. And I think the last thing I'd say people, like we we had actually three lead term sheets and we had turned down people from that because we we're being really selective on who we wanted to lead. We're very excited with our lead investor. And you know the reason for that is you can run into some really jerky people in that space, right? And I'm not saying they're all jerks because I'm not going to make some, uh, something a monolith that isn't. But in general, I think I've met more asshole VCs than I have in any other field. Um, <laughs> and, and so you really want to be selective because these people, it is almost like a marriage. You're going to work, if you're successful, that seed investor is going to be on your board for probably at least three to four years. And so you're going to be working with this person for three or four years. And then after that, as long as you don't have an exit, you're talking about a seven-year relationship with these people. And if you start another company, the, if you return money, which hopefully you do, then that, that person's probably going to call you up and want to be the first check because why wouldn't you want to write someone that made you money? Of course, you want to get into that person's new company. So I would say really like, don't just take the first money, take the best money. I would rather raise 500000 to a million less, have less runway, but have the right people around me. Because they, they really are force multipliers, right? With the right network and the right people that can put you in touch with the right customers and everything else, that million in capital that you didn't raise could be a million in sales, which is way better, way less diluted, and ultimately it's going to help you build a way better business. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? I would say trust my gut. I think you know we are playing in this space where we knew we should have been a top-down company to begin with, but then we played around with the product-led growth motion, and we spent three to four months doing that. But we kind of knew deep down that we were going to be this transparency tool and this accountability tool, and we knew that, and yet we ignored our gut there. And I think that happened three or four times where if we had just did what we thought we should do to begin with, we'd probably be two to three months ahead of that. I think the other piece of advice I'd give is actually ship sooner. We spent a lot of time with design partners 
trying to build the perfect product. And we had done this before. Like it's, the, it's one thing to say, hey, ship fast. You should be shipping. If you're not embarrassed by your first product, you're shipping too slow. And then to do this journey for the third time and still make that mistake. We shipped a product that I think was really good for V1. I certainly am proud of what we shipped, but we could have released from our design partner program much quicker and gone to a much broader audience who honestly started getting punched in the face by the market much quicker, which would have, I think, increased our iteration speed and probably reduced our burn quite a bit to get to the state of the product we're in now, which feels pretty close to product market fit. But you know, we won't know that until we see our sales numbers for next quarter. But it feels like we're getting there with the kind of response we're getting in the market. I love that line, getting punched in the face by the market sooner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's what it is. You're going to get told no a whole bunch, right? By VC, by customers, by people you like, by people you don't like. And it's just how many times can you get told no and stand back up and get back in the game, get back in the arena and keep fighting? I mean, that is a story because for every no you get down the road, that's a yes, right? And only through the no's do you learn where you're not doing well. Well, I'm not buying that. Why are you buying that? Well, you don't have this feature. Okay. What if I can get you that feature in a month? And I'm still not buying it, right? All those no's are how you iterate. I mean, a yes is cool and it does make you feel good, but the yeses are the things that don't really help you get better than no's right? Why are we being told no by BC? Why are we being told by the customers? That's where you start building a real company. And the more no's you can get, and the sooner you can get them, the better off you are because that's, you know, you're accelerating doing a yes. Final question before we wrap here, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? Yeah. In three to five years, we really want to have the establishment that we call it, right? We joke around internally that we're fighting the agile industrial complex. And in our mind, we have a lot of people talking about how we need to double down on what we're doing today. We're not doing enough of it. And I know we're winning when people can start to say and look at data and say, hey, what we're doing isn't working. And we can start to see the initial market reaction to say, hey, wait a minute, we don't need more agile. We need to be doing things differently. We need to be interrogating our process with the data. We need to be doing that. And when the market starts talking about that, that's one indication that I know we're winning. Again, that's towards our admission. In terms of what we want to achieve, obviously we want to have raised probably three or five years from now, we say five, probably a pretty decent Series B. Uh, we want to be a publicly traded company. A lot of people say that because that's the right thing to tell VCs. Uh, pro tip to every time we're listening, when they ask you, what's your exit plan? Just say IPO. It does not matter if you want to or not, that there's one right answer. Just, just, just say that. And so uh, that's your pro tip. And so, but we really mean it when we say it. Like we all have that headlock. So it's, you know, a nice aqua hire and never say no because, you know, you never know where it's going to happen in three to five years. And certainly in the world situation we're in now, we don't know what's going to happen in three to five weeks. And so, you know, that kind of stuff can happen. But assuming everything goes the way to plan, we want to take this company public. So three to five years, we want to be eyeing probably, you know, within, you know, a couple of years forecast to saying, yeah, we're going to take the company public, you know, and knowing what we have to do to get there. I, if we have those two, one from an economic, one from a mission standpoint, I know we've done our job and, you know, I hopefully, you know, that 78% number is starting to come down, right? McKinsey and Harvard are talking about how software is getting better instead of getting worse and how people are starting to figure out how to become 
better at building software. I mean, it's such an existential problem. Every company on the planet is a technology company. And yet 70% of them, the, the projects that they're going to invest in are not going to work. And it's just an insane, baffling statistic to me. I mean, imagine if 78% of planes crashed. Did <laughs> you get on a plane? Like, no. 78% of surgeries killed you. No one would get surgery. And yet every year, we know the statistic going in. Talk to any CIO. They're actually joking, saying it's that low. And yet they will go and spend 30% more next year. And they'll not only accept it, they'll spend more in it. It's it's crazy. And so we want to bring that number down. And we hopefully in three to five years, we started bringing that down, providing an example of how the industry can think and act differently. Amazing. I love the vision. And you're going to have to give us the first interview there on IPO day. You have to keep us in mind. Absolutely. Uh, we uh, I always keep the people in mind that were there and supporting the vision and the mission the entire way. That Those are the fun people. The people that join after the bandwagon, like, all right, that's fine. You're, you're welcome on, but you know, it's just, you know, know that you're late. I love it. Andrew, if there's any founders listening and that just want to follow along with your company building journey, where should they go? So I have a Twitter. It's Andrew W. Wolf. That's my Twitter handle. I don't really tweet. I'm not a really uh, social media guy. Uh, and then we're Bloom Filter on Twitter or Bloom Filter on LinkedIn. We use LinkedIn admittedly more since we're a B2B SaaS company. But if you want to follow along, you know, those are the best ways to do it. Amazing. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know it's going to be a hit with our audience as well. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 